Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, time travellers. You've landed very conveniently just at the right moment, just in the right place to grab your weekly fix of the lowdown from the future. The best of the latest and greatest. Gear up, kiddies, for some Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, just stepping out of the DeLorean with his flux capacitor still smoking. It's Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Yeah, it's been really good. And speaking of cars, actually, I had an interesting experience this week where I'm almost a bit embarrassed that I didn't know something was happening. I had to go to Bathurst. Now, for listeners across the nation, Bathurst is about 200 kilometres inland from Sydney and about 200 kilometres from where we live. Had to go to Bathurst for a meeting. And so I took my wife's Tesla because I like to drive different cars from time to time. So and you I, like to drive the Tesla. I do like to drive the Tesla. <laughs> so I stole it while she wasn't watching and ducked down to Bathurst. And I had enough charge to get back home. But I thought, look, I'll grab a quick bite to eat. And I know there's a supercharger near a nice cafe, so I plugged in there. And it's a very friendly spot around charging stations. There'll be other people plugged in sometimes. You'll have a bit of a chat. Everyone's got a common thing to talk about in terms of EVs Mm. and how wonderful we are because we own EVs and how silly everyone else is that doesn't own an EV. (laughs) But I saw a gentleman there with a Mini Cooper EV that I know my daughter had looked at at one stage there. So I was keen to have a bit of a chat to him. So went over and said, g'day, how are you going? Asked about the car, et cetera. And then I said, where are you from and why are you in Bathurst? And he said, I'm here because there's a supercharger here or there's a charging station here. It was an NRMA charger he was using. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know, but but why were you in Bathurst? What brought you to Bathurst? He said, no, no, the charging point brought me to Bathurst. He said, I bought this car a few months ago. I love driving it. So I just look for charging points and I just go for little day trips. And where did he come from? Sydney. Sydney. So he'd driven out to Bathurst. For a little day trip, he yeah, might have right. even stayed overnight, that particular one. He wasn't sure. He said, I'll, I'll hang around. I've seen a few things, but I might stay overnight. Doing supercharger tours. Doing supercharger <laughs> tours. And so I thought, that's a bit of a one-off. Maybe that's kind of one person does that, and, and that's it. So I went and plugged my car in, went and got something to eat, came back over, and there was another car plugged in, a Nissan Leaf this time. And of course, can't help myself, go over, how are you going? How are you finding the Leaf? My daughter owns a Leaf, so chatted about that. And it was almost the same conversation. All oh, right, what are you doing in Bathurst? Oh, there's a charger here. Yeah, I know that, but why have you come, and I've come for the charger. I said, hold on, are you related to the guy that was here with me, Cooper? (laughs) But it was the same conversation I had. So people are actually doing charging tours. This is becoming a tourist process where people are going and saying, where are chargers? I'm going to go out to that place that's got a charger just for the sake they've got a charger. I know I can get charged up and I'll look around while I'm there. So this guy had a great, the first guy I spoke to had a great time in Bathurst. He looked at a little model railway place there. He looked at some of the things around Mount Panorama there, the racing circuit. So he'd had a great time in Bathurst and the only reason he was there is because there was a charging point there. So it's (laughs) fascinating. So this is what people are doing and sometimes the first gentleman looked like he was semi-retired. So he obviously had a little bit more time in his hands and just chose to go out driving and enjoying the drive because he liked driving the car and then didn't really have any reason to go places. So he thought the best way to go places is where there's a charger, I'll go there. excuse. Yeah. So that was fascinating. So I must admit I was ignorant to that. I didn't know that charging points were used as EV tourism processes. I thought it was really, I've got to go to A, from A to B, therefore there's some charging infrastructure along the way. I'll charge up there on my way to where I've got to get to, because that's the way I've used chargers for the many years that yeah, I've owned that makes cars. Sense. Yeah, that's right. But they are 
tourist destination. The charging points themselves are tourist destinations. So isn't that fascinating? So perhaps people are going to queue into this and uh, either make sure the, the, the charging points are at a tourist destination or build a tourist destination around the, the supercharger. And I suppose there's a little bit of that because you do see destination charges at, say, wineries or mm. cafes sometimes. And, for example, if you own uh, something that could be a tourist destination spot, you can contact Tesla and they'll give you the actual physical infrastructure you need. You've got to go and install it. And the rule is that we'll give it to you as Tesla as long as you allow us to put your particular location on the Tesla charging map. So some places do that now. And that makes sense. You want to bring people to your winery and you've got a tourist destination. But in this particular location, it wasn't necessarily a tourist destination. It was just the chargers that are there in Bathurst. The Tesla superchargers and the NRMA charger are just next to each other. That's just a convenient spot that they put them in there at Bathurst. But hello, this is now somewhere that people visit yeah. as a tourism it's destination. become a thing. Yeah. So I didn't know that and that's fascinating. And now that I know that, when I spoke to those two gentlemen, I started thinking, I think there's a few more people out there that are doing exactly that. So I'm going to keep an eye out for it now. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, we've got uh, another story I noticed uh, on Superchargers later on today. But let's kick off with our first story, um, which comes straight out of a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible script. Or maybe... Maybe the notebook of Tony Stark. Either way, this is some fancy high-tech superhero secret agent gadgetry. Now imagine a computer screen that fits neatly into a contact lens. A smart contact lens. You can be looking straight at someone and getting a live feed of whatever data you can imagine. Matt, is this fantasy or what? It does sound like fantasy, doesn't it? And it reminds me a bit of a teleprompter. And of course, teleprompters have been used by newsreaders for many years. We've seen them probably come to the fore in the political arena with Barack Obama. He used to use teleprompters extensively. In fact, the opposition used to joke that he relied on teleprompters so much that he used to need one at home to have a conversation with his wife. (laughs) So, So he used them a lot. And every speech that he gave, every time he was launching something, you kind of expect some people to be able to just talk off the cuff because they're familiar with what they're talking about. But no, he was really relying on them. But when I say that, many politicians now, that's what they do. They don't want to say a single word wrong. There's so many media reporting on it. If they just stumble over their words slightly or just make a slight miscalculation in what they're saying, a number might be slightly wrong, whatever, next thing you know, that's the news grab. Yeah, that's right. So that's happening. But imagine that, take the teleprompter, And forget about having someone set up a screen a few metres from you on a nice glass screen that you can hardly notice. Imagine having that on a contact Contact lens lens. on your eye. So (laughs) it just sounds fascinating. Now, when you start to think about it, you think, well, hold on. I need a contact lens that somehow can focus the words on there so that I can read them, given the fact that the human eye normally can't read anything much closer than about seven centimetres. So Mm. obviously a contact lens is closer than seven centimetres. So first of all, it's got to adjust for the ability to put those words on there. It also adjusts, it does the normal job of a contact lens. The contact lens was invented back in 1888. So it's still... 1888? 1888, yeah, fascinating. I can imagine this Monopoly guy type monocle and someone's just jammed it in the... (laughs) That's right. Yeah, anyway, sorry. (laughs) Just hold still there, will you? (laughs) Ow, it hurts, it stings, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so it goes back to 1888 and that obviously corrects your vision. So this contact lens still corrects your vision. But then projecting words on there at the right distance or mm. seemingly the right distance so that you can actually read it. That sounds fascinating. But then hold on, you need some circuitry on there to run this whole thing. Yeah. You need some circuitry to communicate with the outside world. And I, I can kind of live with all that, but then you throw a battery in to run it all <laughs> and you think, how can they possibly do all that? So they've actually got 
a prototype right now. So there are researchers out there who have got a contact lens wearing it right now, probably as we speak, and they're projecting this image onto the inside of the contact lens. Now, the big issue they have at the moment is the length of time. So the battery life is a big issue because, again, the battery's not very large on the contact lens. Short speeches only then. That's right. I can give you a speech that goes for 30 seconds and that's it. I've just got to go and change my contact lens. Probably just should learn the script. (laughs) Maybe. That would be a good idea as well. But the, the whole thing there is that they say they can get a short amount of time out of it. Obviously, what they want to get is the whole day. And when you think about something like a smartwatch, most smartwatches don't get you through a whole 24 hours. They might get you through a whole day, like put Mm. it on early in the morning and go to late at night, but not 24 hours. So you think about how big a smartwatch is and how big the battery, and that might be, then you start thinking about contact lenses and getting a battery small enough in that to actually get you through a whole day without having some wires hanging out the side of your eye (laughs) and wrapped around some helmet. But this is a real thing. It's happening out there now. And there's a whole range of uses for it. So the obvious one is something like a teleprompter. But you've also got maybe musicians, rather than having music sitting in front of them playing at a concert, they just have no sheet music in front. It's just coming to their eyes. Or even just the lyrics to a song or actors, anything where you've got to have that information straight in front of you. Sports people, biometric data, how far have I got to go in this marathon, all the sort of stuff that you might have on a watch just projected straight into your eye sounds fascinating. And then, and this is the part that isn't quite there yet, But then they also believe not only can they monitor things like your heart rate from there, but you can start to monitor things like glucose levels for a diabetic. So next thing you know, you've got this, yeah, you've got all this information about your body being projected onto your eye, not quite onto your eye, but in front of your eye, that you can then read. So it can be information from the outside world or information about your body all sitting there right in front of your eyes. Well, and all I can think of is like, um, the depth of field now, like uh, yeah. Yeah, the field of your, your depth of field of vision there, um, and having to, whether you have to focus in and out of this thing to, to see what is behind, how distracting that might be to have that that stuff in front, right in front of your eyes all the time. I guess you know whether we've had Google glasses for a while, but they didn't really take off. But no, no, that, the technology is out there already for for glasses, but but for contact lenses. Yeah, wow. I, it does sound fascinating, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, fighter absolutely. jet pilots, I've seen movies, and fighter jet pilots have all sorts of information in front of it, and the movies wouldn't be wrong, obviously. That's right. They would never lie. So imagine that. And obviously, a fighter jet pilot flying along at a reasonable sort of speed can manage to control the plane and look at all that information. I mean, fighter jet pilots are a special breed, though, too. That's yeah, not yeah. your average person walking down the street. But probably we, if we had them on, we could probably have the ability to focus on what's around us and then focus back in what's or when it's needed. But I think the other thing is you would probably only project that information when it was needed. So yeah. you'd probably walk around using your contact lenses just to see with, and then you need to know, well, what's the weather going to be like in an hour's time? And you call that up with some process, not sure how, but you call it up and then see that briefly on the screen and then you go back to being a normal contact lens, I'd imagine. Mm. And again, to try and preserve that battery life, you'd probably only be projecting when you needed that data. I'm also just thinking about exam supervision right now. <laughs> kids cheating on exams. <laughs> oh, that's a good point, actually. Son, you seem that. to be staring into space quite a bit. What's going on? <laughs> uh, well, it's a difficult with watches too, isn't Hand it? Hand over when, your contact lenses. When son. kids have got watches, I mean, they had smartphones and potentially yeah. kids could duck off to the toilet and have their smartphone in their pocket. But then, right, kids' phones away, you can't have a phone. And mm. then watches come along and you've always got to monitor those. Next thing you know, you'll be monitoring <laughs> for contact lens. Let me look in your eyes, son. Oh, it just be open book exams for everything. I predict that there's going to be a broad bunch of parents who aren't going to buy into this next story. 
Apparently, computer games don't ruin kids' brains, but may even help them to develop. Matt, all those wasted hours of trying to shoehorn kids out of the lounge rooms and bedrooms, the world over, it's all been for nothing. So, yeah, what, what's all this about with uh, video games not ruining, ruining kids' brains? The first thing I looked at was, was this research being paid for by uh, some <laughs> gaming companies? <laughs> Atari's making a comeback. And <laughs> but it wasn't, so let's, let's put that to bed straight away. It's not research being paid for by video gaming companies. It's actually research being done by legitimate universities to just monitor what's happening with kids' brains. And let's face it, our brains develop by doing things a bit like muscles in the body if you want to keep building your bicep up go and keep lifting weights if we want to develop our brain we want to keep using it so i'm a bit the same as you for many years talk to your son get off the games go out there in the outside world or go and do your homework or whatever and maybe hopefully he's not listening right now but maybe i got it wrong all those years maybe it was okay (laughs) for him to be playing games because his neuroplasticity has just gone ballistic and he's made all these new connections and that's that's exactly what researchers are saying that if you play games in a non-obsessive, reasonable time frame. So there's a bit of a caveat on there. But they believe that the the playing of games gives you some cognitive benefits, helps you with your ability to memorize things, right. helps you with your ability to switch among tasks. So a whole range of positive benefits that you're getting out of it. Now, some people talk about the fact that with all these short videos and short things happening, you get kids with very short attention spans. But that's more when you're doing, say, TikTok videos. But with gaming, you actually have to concentrate over a period of time. Most mm. of the games that you're playing, it's not something you get in there for five seconds and then it's, it's all over. You've got to concentrate. You've got to remember where some of the enemies are if you're playing some sort of shooter game. You've got to remember where hidden things are. Yeah, so there's all problem this, solving. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. It is problem solving. And you go through that process. And there's also a bit of coordination. Now, they have said there's no research to indicate that you play lots of Mario Kart, you're going to be a great driver when you finally get your P-plays. <laughs> so, so it doesn't translate in, from that perspective. But even just looking at the amount of grey matter, and when they did tests on kids that grew up playing reasonable amount of games compared to kids who played no games, the kids that played games actually had more grey matter. And so that is, even though we talk about a bit of a joke, oh, you know, how much grey matter do you have? That is a real thing in terms of the amount of grey matter that someone has in their brain or in, in their head. So that was incredible. Now, the caveat was, if you get to the stage where you're playing it too much, now that was a very tricky thing to define. If you play games eight hours a day, but you're an esports gamer, you're a paid esports gamer, that's your job, that seemed like it was okay. But if you play it one hour a day, but it's obsessive for you, and all you can do is think about that game, and when I can get back onto that game for that one hour a day, Mm. then even one hour a day can be too much if it starts to overtake other parts of your life if other things start to suffer if I'm not going out with my friends because I've got to sit there and think about the game they're going to play in a few hours time or your grades at school start to to suffer that type of thing so so you hear that kids it's all about balance yeah and it's not necessarily a time The, the researchers couldn't put an exact time it's not one hour a day, two hours, ten hours a day, it's not a certain amount of time it was really how much it affects the rest of your life so Mm. message from all of this is in moderation everything in moderation, including moderation itself, (laughs) in moderation, gaming is probably okay. And so parents out there, be relaxed, be okay. And what I used to try and do, because it was one of those things that you can't beat them, join them. So rather than try and stop my son in particular playing lots of games, I'd say, right, let me have a game with you and let me play with you and see what's happening. And you'd get completely smashed. Your son would 
beat you all the time because he's playing the game so much, but you got a bit more of an inkling, a bit more of an understanding of what was happening. And you could actually have some conversations then on something that you vaguely understood what was going on. <laughs> so I think that's the message out there is, is let the kids play a bit, but just keep a bit of an eye on it. And uh, you say that playing lots of Mario Kart won't make you a better driver. No. It has enabled me to get really good at throwing bananas out the window. <laughs> good, good work. Um, so um, that's one plus. Well, bananas are okay. As long as it's not wrappers, food wrappers, yeah. paper, that sort of thing. Bananas are okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. Birds can come along and you can give a bit of food to, the, to them. So you get it right in front of the car behind you. That's always yeah, the trick. Yeah, and you can watch them spin out. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Just when you thought fridge technology had gone as far as it could possibly go... Samsung have pulled a rabbit out of the hat and it's game on again, folks. This time, it's all about fridge decorations now. And you can start by slapping your face on the door for 500 bucks. Personalised fridges, Matt. Apparently, there's a market for them. There is a market for everything personalised. People have got too much money, I think, James, is the bottom line. But I used to remember the first dishwasher I put into our house was a dishwasher that had panels that would match the cupboards around there. And so it looked really cool. It looked like there was no dishwasher there. There was a couple of little LED lights. It was the only way you could see there was a dishwasher there. And I got away with, for many years, being able to say to my wife, no, I can't find the dishwasher. Where is it? Where, 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 there's <laughs> That's cupboards why there. I haven't done the dishes. <laughs> That's right. But that, so that was quite interesting. And I think it just blended into the rest of the furniture. But the fridge has always stood out almost as a feature, hasn't it? We had mm. stainless steel fronts or white fronts on yeah. fridges. So always different sort of images there so samsung have finally said you know what maybe we shouldn't have the fridges stand out as a feature maybe we can blend them in or make it stand out whatever oh, yeah. you want to do <laughs> so for 500 dollars they'll take any image that you give them and they do have an asterisk next to that they won't take vulgar images rude images uh, you know, images that might not be appropriate but any images so photos of your kids drawings that you've done but you could also take photos of the rest of your cupboards and actually have it blended in. So your fridge yeah, then right. could blend in with the rest of your cupboards, be the same colour as the rest of your cupboards, and then you can just replace it as often as you like. They'll keep doing it for you. And this is their bespoke refrigerator range. So on the doors of those, if you've got them now, you can say, hey, I'd like some new doors, pay your $500, two new doors will come, you put them on, you get sick of that in six months' time. With a big smiley face on it. That's If you want that, yeah. But if you get sick of it, you put new doors on it in six months' time. Now... I thought that's fantastic. I love the idea. But keep in mind that Samsung have also got the frame TV, which is the idea of having some nice artwork on the wall. And I started thinking, well, surely for $500, you could print the doors of your fridge. Surely it's not much more more money to put something on there that just gives you a screen like a frame TV and have any image you want and change change that. Yeah. Yeah. So with that same technology with the frame where it's very low power consumption to have images on there, then surely they'll just bring in a fridge that says the whole fridge door is a screen, put whatever you want on there, change it tomorrow, change it in a minute if you want, do whatever you want with it. And so you haven't contacted them about this about idea one, and no, no. with your hand out for a little bit of a... <laughs> I'll trial it for you. <laughs> well, you've just told the whole world right now and so, yeah, someone's going to jump in before. Surely, it. surely. Because <laughs> you had, of course, the big thing with internet fridges for a while. Uh, there was a little screen on there that, I'm just trying to remember how big they were, they were probably only about a 12 or 14-inch screen on the actual TV, which seemed like it was a bit useless. It was just, well, you can connect to the internet there, or you can go and sit on your computer and do the same thing. So it didn't really mm. seem to achieve much. But having the whole fridge, the whole front of the fridge as a screen, well, I can see some advantages in that. If you want your picture on there, yeah, go and get your picture printed. But just have any picture on there, then go for a screen. Fantastic. Here's a headline I didn't expect to read. 
Smartphone sales are not just down, they have plummeted by 10%. And Apple is in strife with a drop in its market share. Matt, what's happening? Have millennials discovered telegrams now? <laughs> well, there's a few things, I think, that are leading into this. And we are comparing quarter one this calendar year, so January to March 2022 versus January to March 2021. Now, during the pandemic, some strange things happened. And electronics, many strange things. Many strange things happened. Electronic sales went up, went up sometimes dramatically. And there were some shortages during that time frame as well. So that was even more surprising that some electronic shortages still allowed things to go up quite dramatically. So we are coming off a fairly high base. So it's probably not a great surprise that sales have maybe dropped back a little bit or softened a little bit, but a 10% drop. Yeah, that's big. It is quite a big drop. So there's probably a few things there. There's still some component shortages that's still playing into this. Probably inflation. I mean, in Australia alone, we've had 5.1% inflation, so that's pretty high. Mm. And then probably just a little bit of lack of consumer confidence. It seems strange. We've come out of the pandemic. We're not quite completely out of it, but we're mostly out of it. And consumer confidence has dropped, which mm. you'd think that consumer confidence would be stronger. But people are really questioning now where the world is going. So one of the things that you can choose not to buy is your new smartphone. And obviously people have chosen not to buy that. Australia hasn't been quite as bad. Australia's only dropped by 2%. But you did mention the fact that market share has changed quite dramatically there. And that has been something interesting. Apple typically has enjoyed over 50% market share in the Australian market, not worldwide. And it surprises people. When you tell people that Apple's not number one manufacturer in the world, they give you a strange look because they try and think about any of their friends who don't have an Apple. And they can't think of any of their friends who don't have an Apple phone. So how could they possibly not be number one worldwide? But in Australia, Apple have typically been mid-50s, even up as high as 60% market share mm. when you look at just a quarter worth of sales. So that's quite incredible. So yeah, of 10 people you know, six of those people are going to have an Apple phone. So mm. that's quite incredible. But in Australia, Samsung have actually clawed a bit of that back. So they went from 29.7% market share last year to 36.5% market share this year, and Apple have dropped back 9%, so they're just under 50% now. So Samsung aren't quite there yet in the Australian market, but they're not far away mm. from where Apple are, which is quite interesting. And again, feeding into that is the fact that Apple typically has their launch around September, their new product, their big new product launch, their flagships around September. Samsung typically have it in the first three months of the year. So that feeds into it, but keep in mind that that was the same last year. So it's not as if this year suddenly something drastic has changed there. So that's quite interesting. For the, the next part of it, actually, the, the number of sales, that still blows me away. Australian smartphone sales. So this isn't worldwide. This is just in Australia. Last year, the first quarter, 1.846 million handsets. First quarter this year, 1.805. That's, that's a lot of handsets, mm, yeah. given the fact that everyone's got one. <laughs> who, who do you know that doesn't have a smartphone already? And they still sold in the first quarter of this year 1.805 million handsets. That, yeah, wow. that just blows me away. For a population of 25 million, that's incredible. So, a lot of 12-year-old kids out there getting their first Their first phone. ones, yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, uh, so Oppo was third in Australia. And when you think about those numbers I just told you with Apple and Samsung, Oppo in third position went up from 53 to 5.7%. So third spot is a long way behind. Yeah. And then you've got Xiaomi, Google, some other small brands making up the rest of the percentage share in Australia. So, yeah, quite interesting. Across the world, though, Samsung is still number one. Samsung sat at 22%. Apple sat at number two with 17.8%. Xiaomi, Vivo, they were more prominent in sales success across the world. Huawei is an interesting one. It used to always be up 
near the top, certainly in the top three for many years. Huawei doesn't even figure in the top five now in global or in Australian rankings. So mm. obviously there's been a fair bit of damage done to the Huawei brand. The pandemic of 2020, 2022, will go down in history as an event that redesigned the way we live. The way we mingle, the way we shake hands, a new understanding about practicality and limitations, an awareness of the need to purchase toilet paper in responsible quantities. But did you ever think about how it might have influenced modern home design? Matt, have COVID-19 isolation requirements really made such an impact that new homes are evolving to accommodate it? Evolving very quickly. That's the thing that fascinates me. I would have thought lots of other things would have changed in a much quicker time frame, homes are something that are fairly well established. But people are now building homes and making changes in how they build a home. So in North Carolina, there's a sample home or a, an example home, if you like, called the Barnaby. I'm not sure why. Hopefully it wasn't <laughs> named after our former Deputy Prime Minister. But it's called the Barnaby and it's giving an idea with a whole bunch of information that's been fed in to a modern pandemic-style home. So the first thing you notice is it's just a four-bedroom home. It's designed for a millennial family, mum and dad, two kids, and a pet. Because we talked about it last week, that pet ownership, up to 69% now. So obviously you've got to have a pet in the modern pandemic home. But a few differences there. Four bedrooms, that makes sense. Four bathrooms. Because when you want to stay away from people in the home, you need your own bathroom. What's the yeah. point of trying to isolate if you've got some person, one person in the house that's affected via COVID and oh, They're you're sharing, sharing the same the bathroom. bathroom? Well, that's going to be a sure way to, to share COVID. We might as well just go and all get in together and rub our hands together and say, that's it, we're just going to share it now. So yeah. four bedrooms, four bathrooms, that's the first thing. Second thing it has is a sophisticated home office because someone's going to be working from home. So rather than have... Uh, kitchen that you turn a bench into, something that becomes a bit of a workspace temporarily, you build a sophisticated home office that's got nice surroundings in there, obviously good internet connectivity, good lighting, a whole range of things that you would expect to have if you were in the office working from the office. Because you think someone's going to work from home, maybe more than one person working from home. So that's an important part of the new home. The one I don't quite understand is the secret room. So behind a bookcase in this home, you've got in a, in a couple of like, like a panic room or something. Almost like that. It's not secured, but you just go in behind the bookcase and spend some quiet time in there. But I would have thought well, if you're you isolating, hide the bodies maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought if you're isolating, you didn't need a secret room because you're isolating anyway. But you could just go into this little secret room. But that was apparently was some of the feedback they got from people that wanted somewhere for their own space just to sit there and not be disturbed by anyone. So you press the secret button, just like in the movies. Yeah. The bookcase opens. You go in behind there, close the door, and that's it. You sit in there, and I don't know. Just I do like that idea. <laughs> there you go. Maybe I, I hadn't Makes thought about it. Makes an awesome much. game of hide and seek when you're playing in the home game and someone else is coming to visit. If they're an away if, player, if, that's if right. They don't know about the secret. That's room, right. <laughs> you win. I like it. I like it. Uh, the other part they've got is, of course, is somewhere that you can have your deliveries come. That's a secure area. That's a no contact area. So rather than just leave a parcel at the front door, oh, yeah. so your neighbours can say, "Oh, what's James being?" Oh, I'll go and. Well, that's become that a parcel. really big thing there. Yeah, it has parcel theft. 
Exactly right. So they like the look of your parcel. They've got no idea what's in your parcel, but they'll go and steal it anyway and just have a look at it. And if they like it, they'll keep it. If not, they'll drop it back to your place, I suppose. So having somewhere that you can actually have deliveries come that's secure but it's not in your home, so uh, a drop door or some sort of way to be able to have parcel delivered. So that's what this home's got built in. Because if you're a modern person living through a next pandemic, you're going to need some way to have these parcels delivered. So a whole range of things like that, I think, just gives you an indication of where we're thinking. And so you can imagine architects out there now designing a house. They'd say, well, I might not build all of these things in, but certainly I think it's worthwhile having some of these things in there. I mean, even just the kitchen, there are germ-resistant countertops, germ-resistant flooring, uh, better energy efficiency because people are spending more time in the home now. So the amount of energy you're using in the home has gone up. So how can we make the home more energy efficient? And having the rooms with more sound deadening material in the rooms because you're spending more time in the rooms in the house. So you might be in your bedroom talking to your friends. You might be talking too loudly. One of the siblings in the room next door, can you stop talking so loudly? I'm trying to talk to my friend. So all these things that you really don't think about until you're thrown into that pandemic situation. And so designing the home for all of that makes sense. Probably the crucial thing out of all of it is flex space. So being able to change the home around depending on what's happening. So if you've got lots of people in the home at the moment because there's lots of isolation or in a lockdown, you might want to be a bit flexible with some of the spaces that you're using. So you might be able to turn offices into bedrooms or bedrooms into offices. Mm. And then when you go back to the house being normal, then those flexible spaces can change around again. So it's fascinating how our world changes to respond to what's happening in the outside world. And it'll be interesting to see how common this becomes. And I go back to the initial point that you made about four bedrooms, four bathrooms. Mm. Um, and, and people will be saying, oh, well, we're almost through the pandemic, so we're right. But, you know, um, I remember teaching um, 20 years ago, talking about, oh, well, students were asking about, oh, how are humans going to evolve? You know, are humans still evolving? And of course we're still evolving. But um, in because we tend to control our environments uh, inside a house, it might not be as obvious. It'll be about diseases, the way that we evolve. Yeah. And, um, and this is just one pandemic. Who knows when the next pandemic will come? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's yeah. a good point you make that we, through evolution, have evolved to the way we are now. But because we're now controlling our environment so much, we don't tend to need to build pressure. our bodies to be able to withstand really cold temperatures in areas that are cold because we just build heating or really hot temperatures in places that are hot because we just build air conditioning into our home. So we're controlling our environment so much more. So the, the human body is probably evolving at a slower rate than it yeah. would have if we had still been exposed to the elements. And this is probably another example of that. Build the home to suit what you do, even, even with the dog. So they talked about the fact that they would typically build dog wash facilities in your home. So rather than going to the laundry, which is I know what my kids do with our dogs, go to the laundry, take over the laundry tub and wash the dogs in there that have specific dog wash facilities because you're going to have a dog in your home. <laughs> and dog doors, although I have a big issue with dog doors, I've got a dog door in our house, but I just cannot get our dogs to use it. So <laughs> it doesn't matter different. what you do on the outside, on the inside, and you try and coax them and put meat there or you whatever they want. scratch marks on the side where uh, <laughs> next to the dog door. I want to go All out, I want to go out, I want to go out. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> like, it's just there. Can't you just see? So so maybe they've got some extra training built into the house as well so the dog doors don't need the dogs to be smart enough to use the dog doors. <laughs> Almost gone full circle here. We're coming back to superchargers. In a move that will probably get Tesla owners on edge, the Tesla superchargers throughout the UK, Spain, Sweden and Austria will now be open to 
all other non-Tesla brands. Matt, this sounds a bit altruistic. Are Tesla devotees now subsidising people who aren't prepared to shell out for a Tesla? I must admit that I didn't think Tesla would ever do this. Their competitive advantage was the fact that they said, we believe the charging network is going to be the secret to success. So we'll go and build a charging network before everyone else had one. And so when people were buying the Teslas, here you go, there's a charging network, everything's good. And even the first ones that and you exclusive, buy. exclusive. Yeah. Exclusive, that's right. And the first ones that were bought, I remember my first Tesla, had unlimited free supercharging for life. That yeah. was it. So it didn't sound like a long-term business model, and they've changed that now. You can't buy a Tesla now that's got unlimited supercharging for life. But when you first bought those, it was unlimited for life. And take advantage of all those charges. As other brands came along, then people said, oh, I'm thinking about buying brand X, but oh, wait up, where am I going to charge that? I can't use the Tesla superchargers. So it does seem like something that gives them a huge advantage. So why would you throw away that advantage? But I think they're throwing away that advantage because they can make money out of it. So if you own a Tesla and you haven't got the free supercharging for life, you've got to pay for a supercharger, you pay at a certain rate. When you use a non-Tesla in a Tesla supercharger in some of these countries across Europe that you can do it at, then you pay more. So you pay a surcharge to actually use that supercharger. So at least you're still able, still able to experience the wonderful idea of driving around electric vehicle, being able to charge up at the Tesla superchargers, you're just paying a premium. So when you're next buying one or when you're buying your first one, you might say, gee, Brand X looks all right, but, ah, oh, gee, you know what, a Tesla, just a bit cheaper when I have to supercharge, so maybe I go down that path. So it's still a competitive advantage for Tesla, but I do like the idea that you can now have any brand across most of Europe and you can just plug in. Now, the big issue around America is that across most of Europe, the Teslas have got what's called CCS2 is the charging socket and the Tesla superchargers are CCS2 and most other brands. That seems to be the common standard that most cars are using around Europe. So that's great. They all plug in. Everything's fine. In the past, if you plugged into a non-Tesla, it would just detect this isn't a Tesla, so mm. I'm not going to work. Plug into a Tesla, it says, I know what this is. You've got an app on your phone. You can control it all. That's fine. In America, it's a little bit different. In America, most Teslas are still using the Tesla dedicated charging port, which looks a lot like CCS2 without the two bottom connectors on there. And most of their superchargers are the Tesla-only ones. Now, in Australia, we've got the combination. So you've got a Tesla supercharger has got the Tesla charger and the CCS2 on there. So that makes sense. They'd probably have to do that across America to be able to roll out this concept across America. And just to throw a spin in the works, something like the Nissan Leaf, it's got what's called Chatermo on there. So Chatermo isn't at any Tesla supercharger. So if you've got that, you need a different charger again. NRMA are pretty good. NRMA have got CCS2 and Chatermo, so you can use that there. But again, this whole thing we've talked about, standardisation, you need to be able to make sure that everyone's using the same standard because you don't want to plug yeah. in, or you don't want to pull up to a service station and say, sorry, that petrol bowser doesn't fit your particular car, that one that fits yours is up the road a bit. You just think, surely I can just get petrol from whatever petrol station, and it's the same with chargers. Surely I can just call into whatever charger with my EV and it'll just plug in and it'll work. And we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. But yeah. I, I'm fascinated by this. I, I didn't think it would happen, but it's happening. And obviously, if the plan is to go across Europe, the plan is to go across the world. Now to news from the north. Malaria has been a disease of serious concern for centuries in tropical areas. I know people have described it as being like being taken to the very edge of your life, dangled over the precipice and then pulled back, then rinse and repeat. There are drugs that can be taken, but with inconsistent results. And as the population swells in those tropical areas, 
The need for a modern solution is critical. And it seems that some sci-fi technology has finally come to the rescue, Matt. Well, let's just talk a little bit about malaria. 241 million cases, new cases of malaria in 2020. 627,000 people died from malaria in 2020. And it is such a traumatic experience when you've got it, if you survive it. Well, you think about COVID-19 and all the steps we put in place and we Mm. wear masks and we go into lockdown and we don't shake hands and all these things. But with malaria, you can just be out somewhere with a mosquito and one mosquito can bite you and that's it. How many precautions can you take against that one mosquito that might come along and bite you that might have malaria? So it's a problem. There's no doubt about it. And people are dying every single day as a result of malaria. So yes, we need a modern solution for it. Maybe technology in terms of gene editing can make a difference. And this gets to be a bit scary. Once we start talking about gene editing, lots of people get yeah, scared by get this. Yeah, very nervous, yeah. Now, there are a couple of different ways to do this. The first way you can try and edit genes is you can try and breed different genes into a particular group of animals, or in this case, mosquitoes. But the problem is when you try and edit genes and try and put them into the wild, you might get 50% of the impact because obviously you get part of the gene from mum and part of the gene from dad and they combine and you've got a 50-50 chance of that gene coming through. But scientists are now at the point, and this isn't out in the big wide world, the ethics committees of people like the World Health Organization have said no to this. It's still being tested in the laboratory, but it works in the laboratory. It could roll out tomorrow if it was allowed to roll out what you do is you do a thing called a gene drive. And what a gene drive does is actually says, we'll edit the gene on this side, but that gene effectively becomes dominant. So when mum and dad mate, the gene drive says, I'll take over the gene of the baby no matter what. So it uses CRISPR, it uses an enzyme, and it combines all that into one mosquito And then that mosquito is the dominant mosquito, if you like, so that every time mating occurs, then you get the result of that. Now, what they're doing is they're effectively taking it and saying, no more females. And they're doing that for two reasons. The female is the one that bites in terms of mosquitoes. So if you want to take out some way of spreading a disease, then you take out the female, no more biting. But obviously, if you take out females, then it's a bit hard for the whole population to breed. So that's what they've been doing in the laboratory, using CRISPR, using gene drives to actually say, we're not going to have any more female population. So you can imagine how quickly that would wipe out a population of mosquitoes when every time there's breeding that occurs, then the result is a male and that's it. No 50-50, it might be a male. No, oh, a bit of luck, it might be right. Every time, so every breeding males. cycle that occurs, you only get males and that's it. Your population dies out. So you can see why this is so scary. And if you get it wrong, that's the big thing that ethics committees are worried about. Oh, let's get rid of malaria. Fantastic. We do a gene drive through mosquitoes and we wipe out mosquitoes. End of story. Well, it's only really one species as well. Um, it's the Anopheles mosquito. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's still it's an entire species we're looking to decimate. It, correct. But then if you get a little bit wrong, for example, and so you think you're just wiping out that one species, but it actually goes a bit broader than that, or there's suddenly a bit of crossbreeding that occurs, or suddenly that gene drive is eaten, a mosquito might be eaten by another bug, for example, and then suddenly somehow that transfers across. Now, I don't know if any of this is possible, but these are all the things that I suppose we don't know are possible until suddenly it happens, and then we go, oh, whoops, 
we didn't think about that one. Mm. That's been a bit of an impact. So that's where the issues are. But the potential is there to solve the malaria problem using a gene drive. But are we going to be allowed to use it? Are the scientists going to be able to use this in the big wide world? At what point in time does someone say, yep, let's go for it. Let's wipe out malaria and hope you know, cross our fingers that everything's going to be okay from there. And I suppose then the next part is, what do we do next? Cane toads? Let's get rid of cane toads. Fantastic. They are a huge problem throughout Queensland. Let's get rid of cane toads. Oh, well, that worked okay. What about brown snakes being in areas that they shouldn't be? So let's get rid of those and fruit flies and zebra mussels and Japanese knotweed and all sorts of things you could wipe out. But suddenly you might just go a bit too far with one of those and you wipe out a species you'd don't want to wipe out yeah, or a native species somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So it's fascinating technology. CRISPR, we've talked a little bit about CRISPR before. Mm. We've talked about the fact that CRISPR may well be used for us to lose an arm in an accident and then regrow an arm or remove some disease from our entire population. I mean, CRISPR is fascinating technology. Just getting to the point where you're using CRISPR in a mosquito in this way, to me, that's fascinating. Yeah, cycle of a cyclist sorry the life cycle what am i saying the life of a cyclist is at times a perilous one you're pretty exposed and the risk of being collected by an inattentive driver is a real one experienced cyclists know that you have to do a bit of the thinking for the other road users so any little bit of extra help is a welcome gift the good people at garmin have been on the case and put together some clever tech to make the life of a cyclist just a little bit easier and safer, Matt. I think you got it right the first time, the, the life, life cycle. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very cycle. short one. It is, absolutely yeah. right. So I've actually got one of their original bike radars. I use that on my bike at the moment, and it's great technology. And what does that do? So what it does is it's a tail light so people can see you from behind, and they say it's about uh, bright enough that 1.6 kilometres away a car can see it. So that's fantastic. But it's got a radar built into it, so... Rather than try and have some little mirror that hangs off my handlebars or some mirror that hangs off my helmet like you see some cyclists use and keep glancing there to look out for some Mm. sort of car approaching from behind, what that radar does is sends out a signal and then, as radars do, if it hits something that's moving at speed towards me, then I get an alert on my Garmin device, my Garmin computer that sits on my handlebars, so I get an alert and it gives me a little image to show how far away that vehicle is and as it approaches it gets closer and shows me on my screen in front of me. Eyes in the back of your head. Exactly right. So And it works really well. I was actually intrigued when I first got it to see how reliable it was, but I have not seen it miss a vehicle or anything that approaches from behind at speed. Obviously, if you've got a cyclist behind you, it ignores that because it's going along at the same speed. It's only when someone approaches. So you can be in a group of cyclists and that will see everything, all the cyclists there, and won't alert. And then as soon as a car comes along, it picks up that something's moving at a different rate, a certain differential, and then it picks it up. So that's so, so does that just become like uh, this constant noise then when you're cycling around town? Not really. I mean, where I cycle, there's not a car every few seconds. So gotcha. it, it, there's enough of a gap between those cars that you do actually notice it. And it gives you more a visual. You can use noise as well, but it gives you more a visual on there. Okay. And it shows you how far away. So it picks it up at about 140 metres away to begin with, and then shows you as it gets closer. So that's great. The other thing it does is it's got a solid red light on, and then as a car approaches, it starts flashing and then flashes faster. So the car behind, if it didn't see the solid red light, nah. then notices it's flashing as it gets closer. So it's actually changing there. So it, it gives you more of a chance. But I also do like the dash cam on my bike. I've got a dash cam on the front 
and a dash cam, my front light, and then I've got a separate tail light on the rear that's my rear dash cam. So I've got a dash cam front and back, and I've never used it for, say, for example, a car, hit me or anything like that. I have used it when I was out riding my bike with my daughter one day and a magpie attacked her and it was very ah. funny so so, <laughs> so I posted that one on YouTube that yeah, was fantastic hilarious I'm not sure my, my daughter saw it as funny as I did <laughs> but it's great for just having that little bit of peace of mind that you've got everything that's happening in front of you and behind you being recorded but that means I've got two devices that I've got to make sure I charge up every time before I ride they just plug in obviously rechargeable batteries but I come back from ride plug those two devices in turn them both on when I start to ride and off I go so Garmin has said, well, lots of people out there have got those rear view cameras and no one really has got the bike radar apart from Garmin, but surely you need something that combines the two. So they've now modified the radar to actually have a camera built into it as well. Mm. And it's pretty impressive when you think about it. The size of it hasn't changed much. It's, It's quite small. But it's now got a camera built in, a 1080p camera, so not too bad, 30 frames per second. I mean, that's all you really need. You need some sort of indication of what's happened. It's got a 140-degree field of view, so if a car comes from the side at an extreme angle, then it'll still pick that up. But it'll also record continuously, as well as be a flashlight or a tail light, as well as be a radar, it'll do all of that for four hours. I don't normally ride for four hours, so I'm yeah. okay with four hours in terms of lifetime. It's also got good. an accelerometer built in, so that if you do you have an accident or if a car hits you, if it experiences some form of extreme acceleration, it then makes sure that it's tagged that bit of recording from before when the accident happened to a certain period after that and keeps that locked away so that as it keeps recording over itself, it won't record over that part of it. Oh, right. Yeah, so it says, okay, I'll, I'll just tag this section here so that we know that that particular section is safe. So all of that built into something that just looks like a little tail light, including a battery in there. So I'm quite fascinated by those. And the message to the inattentive drivers is that um, you're on notice. You're on notice, and hopefully people are a little bit better with bikes these days, but the main thing is if something does happen, you want to be able to say, here's the idiot that did it, so let's go. And, and let's hope someone doesn't die from it, but even just getting knocked off your bike, mm. let's go and prosecute this idiot that's done that. Mm. And some people do get carried away. Some people aren't paying attention. Some people deliberately come close to cyclists because they think that would be funny or annoying or let's get them off the road or who knows yeah. what they're thinking sometimes. But again, it does feel cyclists make cyclists feel a bit safer. And hopefully if road users out there know this sort of technology is out there, they may be just that little bit more cautious around cyclists, which has got to be a good thing. Right White noise. I've been an advocate for 30 years. I used to study for my HSC with a radio turned off, um, tuned off a station, uh, and it did a great job of um, drowning, out, drowning out the background hubbub of the household and allowing me to focus a little bit better. Now I use it to help me get to sleep at 2 a.m. when my head talk is chattering away like a cage full of worried budgies. White noise is therapeutic, and Matt, you're going to tell us how to generate it with my iPhone. And I'm fascinated by this. It's obviously a big enough issue that Apple have decided to build it into the iOS. So the latest version of the iOS, if you're running iOS 15 or later, then you've got this option built into there. I've never been much of a fan, so I'm intrigued that you actually have used well, this in the past. And I tell you what, at 2am when you're still solving the problems of the world and then <laughs> predicting other problems that aren't really problems at all, you've got that head talk going. It's just a nice way of just clearing your head. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. So Apple have obviously picked up that and users around the world are 
in or needing this. It's obviously somewhere there's some demand for it. So they've got this ability for you just to go in, go to your settings, accessibility, go to audio, visual, and then you've got background sounds. And you can choose just that static noise, that straight background noise, or you can choose things called bright noise or dark noise or ocean or rain. <laughs> bright so noise and dark noise. I'm not sure. And I might put some samples on. I'm not sure if I'll get in trouble from Apple for doing that, but I might put some samples on when I, when I do the editing of this. But ocean, rain or stream, here are samples of the six different noises that Apple provides. Balanced noise. Bright noise. Dark noise. Ocean. Rain. And stream. I mean, I can understand things like stream. I can just think that bubbling brook sitting there and just that stream, I can see that being very therapeutic. Or rain, you yeah. wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes yeah. it's raining, that sounds quite nice. I must admit, if I had the radio on just not on a station, it would just annoy me, but that's everyone's different. So that white noise well, for some people... Well, you only hear it for the first couple of minutes, I've got to say. Yep. You hear it for the... And then when you are starting to focus on something else... Yep. Um, you notice that it drowns out everything else. Yeah, right. Um, and the, and so you don't hear the noise anymore. You just know that you know, everything else is clear. I'm going to try it tonight. I'm going to go and get my phone and turn on some white noise, some and static prove noise. Me wrong. Well, no, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure it's I'm sure it's fine. I've just I've never really. I suppose when I go to bed normally, by the time I get to bed, my bed is you're waiting s- there and yeah. halfway down about so you know ten centimeters from the pillow. My my body's already asleep. I think before I hit the pillow. But it, it is fascinating that obviously people want it out there enough that you've got it built in there, and then you can do all sorts of things. You can actually have that white noise in the background at a different volume to other noise. So you could actually have a phone conversation or some music playing and still have the white noise behind there or you could just have the yeah, white noise playing. I don't know playing. why you do that, but anyway. No, I know. But I suppose sometimes I think technicians go, you know what? We could do this. Why? Let's just have the option. That's right. But we could do it. Who cares why? We could do it. So I think that's part of it. So it's interesting. And yeah, if you really think that it's something that you need to help you get to sleep or just maybe, I don't know, on a plane you might find the noise of the engine's annoying, so you just want to have some white noise instead. So whatever reason you need it, you've got that ability now to turn on white noise. You can have it so that the screen locks, it turns off automatically, or the screen locks, it comes on. So a bunch of different options there. Go and play with it. As I said, go into your settings, accessibility, audio, visual, and then background sounds. And then basically you've got all those options there. So fascinating that companies are seeing the need for this and providing it for customers. (laughs) And so, with the sound of a gently flowing stream echoing through my own head, relaxing my mind and making me think that perhaps I've left a tap on somewhere, we come to the end of another therapeutic episode of Tech Talk. Matt, I'm a bit worried, actually. Um, That sound of the water is getting louder and um, my socks are feeling damp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope people don't put Tech Talk on to go to sleep with. (laughs) (laughs) And with a sense of increasing urgency, thank you for tuning in once again to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm James Eddy and hope you can join us again in another week's time.